0: This episode of Classic City Crime is sponsored by Berryman Farms, opening for Christmas season of 2020. Choose and cut your very own Christmas tree starting at just $30 and meet me there on opening day November 21st. Bring the entire family. It's located just a half mile from Old Highway 72 on Lexington Road in Carlton and Madison County, Georgia. It's the perfect spot to kick off the holiday season. Hours vary, so be sure to check out their social media page on Facebook at Berry and Instagram at berrymanfarms.ga. This episode 21 of the Tara Baker story starts right now. Alright, welcome, welcome, welcome back to Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J, and I hope you're all doing well this week, despite everything that's been going on. I've got to say, I was so grateful that you were all so patient in this episode releasing just a little behind our midnight-ish schedule. I think we all needed some breathing time, some time to just rest. You know, the last few weeks in our country, and even right here... On the podcast have been full of some breathtaking, heart-stopping, and yes, anxiety-inducing moments. I think I'm not alone when I say that. But you know, here we all are. It is Thursday. We're still breathing, therefore our work for justice is not over our search for the truth for Tara isn't over. We've still got this episode and next week left before we take a longer season break for the holidays, but for right now, I want to get to some of the new information coming in about our search for justice for Tara and her family. You know, I've told you before that hundreds of people, literally all of the time, through Facebook, email, phone calls, reach out and give me names of random men and women who they believe could be involved in Tara's death. Now some of them, get this, are so vague they say, well, I think it was this guy because he was mean to me around this time. Or some are a little more detailed, such as, he told me how Tara died, he told me that he had her laptop, you know who I'm referring to here. So with all of that, I got to catch up with my dear friend, you know him, Dr. Michael Parati, and asked him about why so many people claim to have knowledge on a case when they really don't, and more so why false confessions or claims of knowledge in a case exist, and what can that mean for investigations like ours. Now there is a reason I'm asking him all of this, and I'll get to that in just a minute, but first, let's welcome back my friend, forensic psychologist Dr. Michael Parati.
1: Yeah, false confession is actually uh, it's very very prevalent. And, uh, you know, there's <clears throat> what I have observed is there's a lot of people, you know, trying to flee countries. And, you know, they <clears throat> or passive dependent people on the police get mm-hmm. heavy handed with them. And, you know, they use what is called the uh, Read technique, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is uh, you know uh, trying to induce guilt, trying to get a confession, all that, you know. And uh, it's it's a dirty area because I was in one case, and uh, I got the written transcript, but something wasn't quite right. So I said, uh, "I want the video, also." And so I looked. I looked at the video. I looked at the written transcripts. Have you seen a weapon like this before? Uh, No. Are you sure you haven't? Now, come on. You know, you're not going to sit here and lie to me, are you? Or else, you know, I'm just going to put you in jail. Well, I may have. And then it, it turned out that he said yes, that the defendant said, yes, he did. And so then I went to the video. The initial part of the video, the nonverbal body language, slump you know, he was standing he was sitting up a wreck. No, I've never seen a weapon like that. No, I've never experienced seeing anything like that. You know, sitting up straight, then toward the end of the interview, you could see uh, you know, that that he was saying, uh I may have seen it, not have changed it yet. So they had they had on the video that he said yes, but on on the on the written transcript, but on the video, he said yes. I may have, but he never said a definitive yes. Maybe I did, you know, but I'm not sure. Do you know they put yes period? Wow. On the written transcript. Wow. So I said, I I you know. I got the court to let me operate the remote control and I showed it to the jury and I said, well, the picture is worth a thousand words. And I played it for the jury and the cop was in the courtroom. I never drive through that town again because if he ever sees me, I don't know what he's going to do to me. You know? <laughs> and you know, there's different types of false confessions. There's Coerced false confessions, there's, there's um, coerced compliant, you know, there's uh, different types. There's, what I do is I, I have, you know, I have a, uh, a test that I give, and I give them a paragraph to uh, memorize. Then I ask them 20 leading questions. And then I say, After they give me the answers, I go, you made mistakes. You made some mistakes. We need to do this again. Then I ask them the questions all over again. And do you know that people who are suggestible, they'll change their answers. (laughs) Mm. I get them to change their answers. You know, you can compare it with their age group and, you know. Then I give a compliance test, which is uh, it's acquiescence to authority. You know, that they become jelly in the presence of authority. You know, like, I, I, um, I came in a, a room in a jail to evaluate this guy. And, I mean, he was anxious before I even opened my mouth. You know, mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's, and then I give personality testing to see if they're passive or dependent so that's the multiple approaches to evaluating false confessions. You
0: know. so here's why i gave dr parati a call this week when i first reached out to dear miss virginia to speak with her about tara's case she told me there were many people who had done the same thing to her and her family claimed to have knowledge, wrote them saying they had details on the case, and so on. I asked if she'd ever specifically received letters from anyone who was incarcerated, who claimed to have knowledge of Tara's death or to know someone involved. You know, especially since many of the characters we've been talking about do have a criminal past and have been in the county jail at least some point over the last 20 years. She told me that she had received letters like that in fact she received one from a man who had once been locally arrested for a crime and was headed to prison he told her he claimed to have knowledge of tara's death that could help her and that he would only tell her the details but here's the catch when miss virginia wrote the man back as soon as she could the letter was returned to her returned to sender because the man had already been moved to another facility in the state Now, it took me a long time to identify, number one, who this individual was, but number two, to get in contact with him. And let me just say, getting access to someone in prison during a pandemic is not something that's very easy. They do not allow public meetings right now or visitation hours. And I haven't received any phone calls, but what I have received is a series of letters. And with each letter, more information about what he claims to know And note I said claims to know about Tara Baker's death. It took a few letters for us to get there, I'm going to tell you that, too. We had to build some sort of pen pal relationship, if you will. But I get it. He didn't trust me in the beginning, and I still, quite frankly, am not sure that I trust him. But, you know, I am still holding on with full hope that as the letters keep coming, the information will start to make sense. After all, he did try reaching out to Miss Virginia. So what do the letters say? I'm going to share them with you exclusively right here today. And I've shared the first letter with you already, but for memory's sake, I'm going to share it again. And the first letter you'll recall that I received from him was not very nice, and he did not want me to write him back.
2: 1015. Mr. J. I've received both of your correspondence in reference to Tara Baker. To start with, I know who told you I might know something. I had said something to Chris about it, but then decided not to get involved with it. It's none of my business, especially now. I'm in prison, and I'm not going to put my life in any type of jeopardy. You must not realize talking to the police could possibly get me hurt if not killed. I'm sorry, but I I just can't say anything to anyone, so I can't help you. I'll pray you find someone that could put you on the right path. Please don't contact me anymore about this. You know the officers read mail, and they read something the entire compound will know. I will not put myself in that position. Take care. Anonymous. 1023. Cameron. What's going on? Look, I hate that I had to write that other letter, but I had no choice in the matter. You have to realize I'm in prison. Prison is a dangerous place, especially if people think you're a snitch. I'm going to give you a little hint, and that will be it if you'll continue your search and guarantee me that my name will never be mentioned. I'll let you know, and then I'll put you and only you on the path that can bring closure. Signed, Anonymous. Eleven two. Hey, I hope you're doing well. Hope the bakers are good. I want to say this. What I tell you cannot go anywhere with my name attached to it. You know why. I personally think that if Clark County would have done their job, it would have been over by now. I was working for a man doing heating and air work in 2001, he's deceased now. On the day this happened, we started out at Barrington Condos on Lexington Road. We left there and headed back to Athens, he turned right onto Cooper Road and he had forgotten his gauges so he turned on Fawn Drive to go down and turn around. Well, this individual was coming out of the apartment in a real big hurry. That's why it drew our attention. Later that day, my boss called me and told me about the fire and the murder. Or at least he said someone had died in the fire at that time. He had no idea it was a murder. A couple of days later, I seen this individual again at the McDonald's on Gaines School. He was inside eating and, oh, by the way... A blue and gray Chevy pickup truck was parked on the side of the road that day when it happened. The guy that came out was headed toward that truck. Anyway, about two months after that, I was at the East Side Bar and Grill's shooting pool, and Buddy walked in and sat at the bar. Then he came over and started talking and shooting pool. Well, I would see him a couple of times a month. I never told him I had seen him a couple of days earlier on Fawn Drive. Lo and behold, He ended up in the county jail about a week after I did when I caught this charge. He got out on bond. About a year later, I had seen his name in the blotter. He had gotten a burglary charge. He was in the county again this time, right in the same pod. We got to be good friends and talking. One day, he started talking about Tara and what had happened. I don't know if you know, but something was missing out of her place. Look, that's all I can say for now, so take care. Signed, Anonymous.
0: So just a side note, I found out who that Chris character is. It's not Tara's boyfriend, Chris. No, Chris was a detective with the athens Clark County Police Department, who this person shared a small amount of information with. Oddly, and perhaps coincidentally, Chris was also one of the lead investigators on the case involving the Spider's involvement in a string of robberies in 1999. The man told me, though, he didn't tell Chris everything, that he would only share the truth with me, only me. I don't know why, but I hope he lives up to his word. But in true Cameron J. fashion, I did not... Just let it be. Of course I wrote him back again, but I did change the tune of my approach. Letting him know, number one, I'm not police. In fact, I don't think they're very fond of me. And I was not after him to use his name. That I simply wanted to help the Baker family, and I knew that at one point he had tried to do the same. And his tune did change in the following letters. Here's what he said. So these are things I've never mentioned before. Are they true or are they not? Who knows yet? But I've never heard this truck description before that he mentioned, so I wanted to put that out there because some of you might make a connection through your knowledge that I simply can't. I should receive a new letter any day now, and if that communication stays on track, I will keep you updated. We are still writing one another, and I am awaiting the final name and description of the man he claims was running from 160 Fawn Drive in 2001. The man he claims he then grew to know. Could this change everything? Maybe. Could he implicate someone we're already talking about? Wouldn't that be interesting? Or could he honestly be pulling my leg in a game of charades, which is what Dr. Parati has warned me of before? Yes, he could be. But I'm going to pray and hope you'll pray as well that that is not the case. When we come back, we're going to talk more with my friend, Dr. Michael Parati, forensic psychologist, about all that we've learned in the last few weeks, specifically about the spider and the ant and what it could mean for our investigation. And we have an initiative that we want you to be a part of. What does it involve? Well, writing a letter to the governor. We'll be right back. This Week in Classic City Crime is brought to you by someone special to me who wanted to remain anonymous but wanted to donate to the cause to help find justice for Tara and to help us while doing so. They want Miss Virginia and the entire family to know that many people do care. Thanks so much to this anonymous sponsor. If you are ever interested in partnering with us, whether anonymously or through your business, please email us at classiccitycrime at gmail.com We always, always appreciate your support. Let's get back to episode 21. Alright, welcome back. Before we jump into our investigation again, I just wanted to remind you of one thing. Don't forget to place your orders for our CCC official stainless steel tumblers made by our dear friends at Kismet Designs. You can pre-order on our Facebook or on our Facebook group, and ordering does end November 15th. Thanks to my friend Ginger, who's out there, who has helped us with this. And by submitting your order, you're helping her small business and us in our quest for justice for all here in the Classic City. So we've really learned a lot over the last few weeks about the ant, the spider, and people involved with both of them. I actually was able to make contact with a former partner of the woman in question, but we were not able to talk, of course, as time and luck for me would have it, before the podcast came out, but I hope to bring that to you soon. With that, I am going to turn it back over to Dr. Michael Parati, where he talks more about what we've uncovered together the last few weeks, what it could mean for our investigation, and what it means about the person responsible for Tara's death.
1: You know what what we call them? We call them... uh predatory murderers, predatory killers, Mm -hmm. as opposed to affective killers, affective killers. It's uh, all emotion, and you know, rage and, you know, uh, impulsivity, Mm -hmm. predatory killers are, you know, they're, they do horrible things, but they do planning, premeditation, kind of like your case mm-hmm. like with a fire stove. because uh, I've had people who they've I mean they've wiped out six ten people you know 15 people and they've gone up to the scene and they've get scan, they scanned the scene and then they saw different kinds of people and they just eliminated them so some of these people are very psychotic some of these people are you know they're on They have substance abuse. But they are uh, capable of planning like your person. Mm. So so you can say this about your case. As a matter of fact, uh, I did a a neuropsychologist in L.A. invited me to do a chapter on neurodevelopmental aspects of violence. And so I did did a chapter on finishing it. And in the chapter I talk about uh, predatory, uh, predatory killers versus affected. That's what you
0: have, you know. Mm-hmm. And by predatory, that does that necessarily mean that they're looking for someone to hurt, or does it mean that they are, you know, if they have the opportunity and they need to hurt someone, they will. What do you? What does that really mean? Predatory killer.
1: Well, it means it means that their their actions are planned. They're laid out, just like this guy, with a fire that he sent. Mm-hmm. Those are planned actions. So they're like predatories, like the word predator, you know. Are you familiar with um, the Golden State Killer story in California?
0: Yes, yes, sir.
1: Yeah, so he killed about 20, 30 people. And he was a he was a farmer police officer. And uh, he would do gruesome, gruesome homicides you know just decimating people and all but he would tie people up he would put the husband in one room the wife in another room so there was a lot of planning you know who else is an example of that who's that another person who's an example of that is charles manson sharon tate who was pregnant he wanted her killed, not because she did anything to him but because she represented hollywood but he had some beef with some people in hollywood so therefore he has these girls that he has under his control that go in the house and you know
0: cut her up like a piece of liver while she's pregnant so let's just say that this hypothetically that this is some random act and a person comes in tara's home Um, to break in, and she startles them, sees them, and they attack her. Could you see that as a possibility, or...?
1: Uh, It could be, yeah. It could be random, you know? I mean, very well could be. You know, although, there's the other question. Why was it her? Why were there no obvious signs of forced entry? Here's the thing, okay? If this was a random act of violence... This person goes in there and just uh, destroys her. They're going to do it to someone else. That's what doesn't make sense.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Generally, these people, they repeat violent acts with
0: other people. This (laughs) This woman that sets the other arson, beats the man up at the arson, tries to stab someone recently and hits a man in the head and has a connection to Tara's case in the sense that she committed a similar arson, not necessarily... Uh, yeah. violence does that pique your interest
1: yeah it does it does i work in that area generally you have situational versus non-situational homicides mm-hmm. you have uh intimate partner violence versus non intimate partner violence uh and uh these people generally they don't. They don't commit do a crime like terror and then they never do anything like that again. They go out there and they do it again. That's what's so strange about the case. But they might be. You know, who knows? They might have went to Mississippi mm-hmm. and did it to someone in Mississippi. Because a lot of those people are nomads. You know,
0: the, with the repeat offending, say you know, like with terrorist case: stab, beat, strangle, murder, arson can repeat offenses from these type of people not necessarily involve the death of another human but similar actions that they took in their crime for example the repeat offense might not be murdering someone but might be stabbing a person or and them not dying or the repeat offense oh, might be of or the repeat offense might be the arson and not killing someone
1: of course of course yeah because see you're talking about class of offenders it's called lethal violence lethal violence your case is a case of lethal violence and those people have there's a certain syndrome of violence you know they they see a person or they think about a person and then uh, there's percolating thoughts in their head and then they go the cycle escalates the cycle escalates and the violence and emotion in them increases and they have to discharge the emotion by killing somebody. And then it's released, and then there's quiescence, and they're back to the pre-homicide state. Mm. That's called uh, lethal violence. So it could very well be that they were experiencing these type of thoughts, and they had an escalating violence in their head. And poor Tara, she happened to be around that night. Mm. That's what your case is. You have a
0: case of lethal violence. So what is he saying? He's saying the person who did this could be a repeat offender, yes. But it doesn't mean they've necessarily repeated the offense of murder. I think that's very, very important in the context of our investigation, don't you? Thanks again to both of these gentlemen for their time this week. Finally, you have been asking me what you can do to help. Some of you have offered to write letters to elected officials, stand and wave a sign for justice at the police department, and to do countless things to help us find the truth. And we've been thinking about what to do both as a podcast and as a family unit with Terrace Family. This week, I once again emailed the athens Clark County Police Department, not only to see if they were willing to do an interview now, but to hopefully schedule a meeting to discuss some findings, and really to find out what has their investigative response been to the podcast's investigation. The response, I'm going to be quite frank, it was rude. Accusations that I have withheld information from them, which are untrue. Listeners, I can assure you, I have pages upon pages. Of my attempts to help the Athens Clark County Police Department. And if they ever need to be made public, I have no problem doing that. Now, not only because of this interaction, but due to 20 years of lies, inaction, ineffectiveness, and yes, I'll say it, misconduct on this case. In case you've forgotten just how bad it is, just go back and replay some of the episodes to see how the Baker family has been treated. So what are we going to do about it? Well, the family and I have crafted the following petition, and we're asking all of you to join us in signing it to make sure this injustice the Bakers have experienced not only finally comes to an end, but that other families never have to experience the hell they've endured. Here is Tara's sister, Meredith, with the contents of this letter.
3: To Governor Brian Porter Kemp, we, the family of Tara Louise Baker... Cameron J. and undersigned members of the community respectfully request this office's help in finding justice for Tara Louise Baker. After nearly two decades with little to no answers from the Athens-Clarke County Police Department, this community has lost all faith in the ACCPD and their abilities to solve this heinous crime. Tara Louise Baker, was born on January 20th, 1977 in Fulton County, Georgia. Born a bright child, she became the guiding light to her siblings, cousins, and peers. She was fiercely loyal and was a champion of those she loved. If you were her person, there was never any doubt that you were loved. A natural leader, Tara was the founding president of the Button Gwinnett Society, Children of the American Revolution, and the youngest of four living generation members of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Tara debuted at the State Conference for the Daughters of the American Revolution in 1995 as a member of the Augustine Clayton chapter. During high school, Tara wrote to and quickly made friends with Congressman Matt Collins. Mr. Collins accepted her invitation to her civics class presentation on local government officials. Mr. Collins spoke of their friendship and her bright future at Tara's funeral. Tara then graduated from Georgia College and State University cum laude in three years with two degrees, a Bachelor of Science in Political Science and Paralegal Studies. In addition to her studies, Tara was an active member and officer of the Alpha Delta Pi Sorority at G.C.S.U. Tara began working for a successful lawyer in her hometown following graduation before finding her way to Athens, Georgia. Tara soon began work as a legal assistant in the real estate division of Fortson, Bentley, and Griffin. During Tara's time there, she honed her professional skills, bent the ears of any partners willing to listen, and applied for law school. Tara had just started her second semester at the University of Georgia's law school when her body was found in her burning home on Fond Drive in Athens, Georgia on January 19th, 2001. Tara had been murdered the day before her 24th birthday. After she had been beaten, strangled, and stabbed, her killer set her apartment ablaze to conceal the evidence. Tara led a beautiful life and was so full of promise. Her death is the very definition of tragic. While police maintain that her murder was a burglary gone awry, the only item stolen from the home was Tara's laptop. A jewelry box containing family heirlooms remained on Tara's dresser, and diamond-studded earrings were in her ears at the time of the grim discovery. Additionally, the bedrooms of Tara's roommates remained untouched. The athens Clark County Police Department's 20-year investigation of Tara's murder is flawed, incompetent, and rife with misconduct. The police failed to secure the scene. Phone records indicate that emergency personnel broke protocol and made personal phone calls from the scene using Tara's landline, further contaminating evidence. The coroner at the time used his home as his office and had photographs in the open from the autopsy, thereby further compromising the integrity of the investigation. Basic tasks were not performed at the scene, no vacuumings were done of Tara's car before being released, the trash was not taken from the apartment, and no aluminum was used at the scene. The police made the initial statement when meeting with the family on January 19, 2001, that there were significant samples of DNA under Tara's fingernails that had been clipped and collected, a statement heard by four family members that the police later denied ever being made. It was later learned that a detective on loan from the University of Georgia's campus police department sought out and informed Tara's classmates of exact details of Tara's death in a concerted effort to obtain information and essentially frame a fellow classmate for the murder. Information that had not been released to the family was given to these law students in this scheme. The police withheld the theft of the laptop for over a year, a detail that, had it been made public, could have easily tracked down, apprehended, and led to the conviction of the killer. The police withheld the death certificate for over 10 years from the family and the true cause of death. The police withheld the autopsy report from the family for 19 years until an outcry from the public and a threat of an independent examination of Tara's body was made. The Baker family organized and raised funds to have Dr. Henry Lee enlisted to help with the investigation. The ACCPD denied this request. Instead, the investigators presented Dr. Lee with a single notebook during a convention that could not have possibly given Dr. Lee an in-camera review of the evidence given the voluminous case file. It has been confirmed to this date by Dr. Lee and staff that no record of this meeting exists and that Dr. Lee did not offer any findings to the police. Throughout our 20-week private investigation, It has been noted time and time again that individuals who went to the police with credible information were either ignored or dismissed altogether. It has come to light that there are and were several conflicts of interest within the police department and several persons of interest. It has come to light several missteps on the part of the investigators and emergency responders. It is evident that after 20 years, The ACCPD is incapable of nor will admit that they are simply in over their heads. For too long, the blue curtain has shrouded this investigation and others alike from the police department's missteps and misdeeds. There are over 40 unsolved murders in Athens. Baker, Stone, McDuffie, Carey, Goss, Hector, Hunter, and just to name a few. How many murders must go unsolved? How many killers will be allowed to walk free? How many families will remain helpless and without answers? How many? We respectfully request the use of any and all powers of the state government of Georgia and the governor's office to have Tara Baker's case relinquished from the hands of the athens clark County Police Department. For 20 years, Tara's case has remained active and the police department refuses to label the case cold, which has prevented the family from seeking outside help to review the case. 20 years later, and the police are no closer to an arrest or a conviction than they were on January 19th, 2001. We, the petitioners, have lost confidence in the local jurisdiction's ability to solve this case and only further exacerbated by their continued denial of help from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and other private forensic experts. We thank this office for the time in reading the presented petition and for its consideration. We, the Bakers, Cameron J., and the community await this office's decision.
0: Thank you, Meredith. Now I encourage all of our listeners to get to signing. You can find the link on our social medias and in the podcast description. Let's make a difference here together. See you next week when we catch up with the Baker family and bring you some final thoughts and new information before the holidays. I'm Cameron J. Stay well, be well. See you right back here next week. Thanks for tuning in to Classic City Crime, hosted by me, Cameron J., co-produced and designed by Kyle Gazaya. You can find us online at facebook.com slash classiccitycrime, Instagram at classiccitycrime, and www.classiccitycrime.com. For story tips or more information or to contact us, email classiccitycrime at gmail.com.